BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, Races, Places, and Spaces. How is it possible that a president who's perceived by many as racist made significant gains in support among black and brown voters? What does that mean for partisan politics going forward? How do both parties actually earn the diverse vote? And what do these findings mean for diversity of thought? not just in politics, but business. How do we better foster diversity of thought without creating more division and polarization? And lastly, what can we take from the current political climate to build more internal alignment and innovation inside our companies? This and also our first ever guest on this episode of TDR. Jesus, it's a week later. I feel like there's been, I've actually been taking it easy on uh, on all of the news info because it's sort of been like watching a, a kind of a explosion or train wreck and then trying to look at all the pieces flying in the air and I just don't have a lot of time for it. <laughs> slow so motion. Been, yeah. A slow motion crash. So, and that and the fact that I've actually been traveling, I haven't been as, as plugged in as perhaps I, I have been in, in, um, in previous weeks. Nevertheless, there's a lot to talk about. Um, where should we begin? Um, yeah, I think now being a week removed from uh, from the elections, I think a lot, you know, a lot of what I've been thinking about and seeing is is really seeing sort of the aftermath of what you know what groups actually delivered um, both for for both camps, right? For for President Trump and and now President elect Biden, um, and specifically, how did those groups actually reflect what were I think in many cases the assumptions that we all had in terms of how they were going to vote? And some really interesting themes have definitely come up. We talked about this, I think, last week a little bit, um, introducing some of our early reactions, specifically as it, as it related to the Latino vote. Um, I know we got into the dynamics in Florida and Texas, uh, but it was, you know, that was sort of like early signs of a bigger trend, I think, when you look at it in terms of what actually happened here. And there was, you know, as I started breaking this down, uh, a couple of articles came out that were really interesting. One from The Atlantic, uh, which, you know, sort of the, the subtitle of this, which I love, which was called The Polarization of Place and the depolarization of race are the stories of the moment. Yeah, And that, I think of everything that probably captures best uh, how to describe what, what actually happened. Now, a lot of this, once again, too, just to clarify, is, is this coming from exit polls? So it's not complete data. There's still a lot to be said here. That's part of the challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges, to your point, uh, in terms of seeing that little that train wreck kind of st- unfolding is the fact that it has been so slow just to get the results and to understand what really took place. 
Um, so, you know, we have what we have in terms of data, but looking at that, I think there were some really interesting trends, specifically as it related to three core categories, education, uh, race, and then also uh, place, right, which is the urban or versus rural. So maybe let's highlight a couple of those and we can speak to those a, a little bit, right? So yeah. in terms of education, in counties where the population is made up of more than 20% college graduates, uh, it saw Biden make an average gain of 3.4 percentage points on Hillary Clinton's vote, votes compared with just 0.5 points elsewhere, right? So, so these are counties that have just a denser population or have whatever, a high composition, let's call it, of, of, of college graduates. Of college in those counties, he had a better than Clinton yeah, better perform- Cor- Correct. Got it. Right? Okay. And, and everywhere else, he, he, he had a better performance, but just not as, it wasn't as, as drastic, right, that performance uh, gain. Uh, and in contrast, really, for Trump, he secured gains of two and a half points in counties where more than 70% of the population were white non-college graduates. Which, by the way, that's a story that was very similar to the 2016, at least from a headline standpoint, it seemed that, you know, Trump has done better with non-college educated whites. It's much more nuanced here, and we'll get into that, because to say that just across the board actually doesn't speak to what it seems like actually occurred. But right. that story so far doesn't sound very different from what we heard in 2016. Correct. What is more interesting is when you see the actual stats as relates to race, right? So in about 300 counties, where more than 30% of the electorate is African-American, Biden made smaller gains of an additional 0.8 percentage points, or so less than one, one point. Than in other areas where he made about 3.2 percentage points on average. So everywhere where he gained, he gained by more than three points. But in these 300 counties where they had a high composition of blacks, he actually made much smaller gains relative to his average gains just across the board, meaning he under-indexed himself in those areas. Is that Correct. fair? Yeah, it is. I think one of the things, though, when you look at the at the African-American vote is that it's been so heavily weighted towards the Democratic Party you know, to some extent, you would expect that those gains won't be as high in those areas because he already, or the Democratic Party in general, gets a pretty significant share of the of the of the African American vote. We talked about this before. We talked about it the last time. Is uh, it was uh, over ninety percent is what they typically get. Um, in this case, it was a drop, right? Because overall, President Trump was able to increase his support by the African American group from eight percent in twenty sixteen to twelve percent. But still, relatively speaking, the, the lion's share of that vote is still going Democrat. Do we know what the highest percentage in modern history has been of the African-American vote for a Republican? No, I don't have that here. Uh, we know that over the last few elections, definitely has been a gain. Uh, but I don't know overall what well, it was. I remember the Romney one for sure. The Romney one was 6%. 6% so it's correct. a 100% improvement over Romney. And yeah. a 50% improvement over, over Trump's own kind of uh, performance in in 2016. So, which again is, you know, consistent with what we talked about the last time in terms of there being much more movement in in this particular cohort. Um, You know, again, these are small numbers on an absolute basis, but on a percentage basis, on a share basis, pretty significant gains. Yeah, they they are. I mean, what is interesting is when you look at these kind of breakdowns, the part that I have, a, I just don't have that level of details, understanding the nuance because those, those are, we're talking about national numbers now, right? Not specifically to certain uh, states, counties, et cetera. Although here is I was kind of a, kind of a summary. But what is interesting is when you look at you know what's happening in a state like Georgia, right? That has historically been uh, a red state, and is at least how it stands right now is going to be a blue state. Um, obviously, a lot of that driven by the African American vote, right? So it, it is interesting when we look at some of these stats, and it's, it's of course we will tend to focus on where the shift has taken place. 
Nevertheless, the, the support by far was very strong with African-Americans, very strong with Latinos, although relatively speaking, it's where we saw Trump make quite a bit of gains. Yeah, it was sort of like the numbers. What's the, what's the, the way that they, the expression about sort of, um, you know, it's sort of decreasing acceleration or something. There's like, you know, it's, it's still there, but it's, it's uh, the level to which it plays a role in the ultimate outcome has actually been minimized relative to, to times um, past. Right. Uh, I, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to keep on going through on the race part. So Biden also did marginally better in counties where more than 90% of the population was white. So this is interesting, right? Because this is, goes directly to the point of his ability, at least in this election, to be able to peel off some of that support yep. in some of those key Midwest, Northeastern states, well, you know, where he won Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Pennsylvania, all of which were flipped from 2016. But a, a number of those which were actually historically been blue states, right? So you kind of see this sort of reversal um, in some of these cases of what happened in 2016. And I think this is really interesting because it gets at the heart of something that I've been hearing for a long time, just in general, to the extent I'm, I know anything about politics. And again, I, my caveat is I'm not a pundit. I'm not someone who deeply, deeply studies these things. I have an ideological and philosophical perspective that for sure colors how I view things. But I don't know, like, you know, the process and I don't know, like, what senator, like, Wyoming has. I don't know any of that right. stuff and I don't care to, frankly. But one of the things that really is interesting to me about some of these statistics is the fact that when, you know, Trump won the, 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 in 2016, one of the narratives that I consistently heard was just, you know, all of these racist folks who had come out to, to kind of vote. And when you looked at it on a county by county level, what you found is that a lot of people who actually voted for him who, that made the difference in what was electorally a very narrow victory for him were people who had voted for Obama previously. A lot of those people did. And a lot of them now seem to have gone back to sort of the blue side. So they've, you know, if you follow the kind of narrative of that headline, they, they weren't racist, they became racist, and now they're not racist again. And that's why I think that using really kind of facile and broad statements like that, they're, they're really unfair to the entire process. They don't really offer the kind of nuance that's required in understanding these things. The reality of it is, yeah, and there, by the way, there were a lot of new voters in this election, which mm -hmm. I understand, those right. people voting for the first time. But what I'm talking about is like a huge swath of people who voted in Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, all these different places, who frankly have been on that fence and have flipped their vote from over the last you know two or three different elections. And that's why I, I just think that just throwing a giant blanket, which is how I perceive these elections are generally spoken about. Like Trump does great yeah. with uneducated whites. Yeah, but he also got more blacks and maybe an ever and more Latino support than, than in a long time. So that can't be it. Or Biden, you know, has like all of this great, uh, um, you know, sort of diverse support, but he actually had huge gains with whites. So all of these things to me are the reason why we need nuanced discussions, because I don't think it's fair or accurate to just throw giant things over the uh, over the electorate and say, this is what's going on right now. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, I definitely want to unpack that a little bit. By the way, one, I just look it up right now in terms of the African-American vote relative to the Republican presidential um, voting. And this is actually by far not the highest. Uh, as a matter of fact, the highest was in 1956, where 39% of African-Americans voted Republican. I well, will say between yeah. 1936 and 1960, it was in the 30% give or take range. Yeah. And then after the 1960s is where it definitely went Democrat, right? Uh, where it, all of a sudden it, it really flipped. And we could probably guess pretty quickly why that would be the case. But it flipped pretty, pretty quickly to be in the 90s, 80, high 80s, 90s, kind of across the board, and it's been that case 
uh, kind of ever since. I think the the closest they got before to the to the current number right now would be in 1992 and 1996 of 11 and 12%. Right. And, and I should have been more, more precise about my question. I meant more in like the last, you know, whatever, 40 years, because obviously the <clears throat> the black population at one point may have actually been a majority Republican, right? And obviously Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Frederick Douglass was a Republican. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a, a great Republican background to the black community, but I mean, since like LBJ, maybe yeah. you know, in the last I mean, this seems 50 to be, years, 60 years. That flip seems to be tied around the timing of the Civil Rights Act is what I'm guessing. Right. Just look at looking at the years when that happened, where then the African American vote went, went, went very Democrat uh, from there on. Although I would say actually I did miss it. For 2004, it was they got 11. percent So okay, yeah. so that would have been the, the last one, which would have been I guess uh, George Bush uh, Jr. Uh, George George W. Bush. George W. Mm-hmm. Bush, correct. Yeah. Um, that would have been the last, and they, he would have gone the highest, 11 percent of the African American vote. Mm-hmm. So uh, you said you want to unpack. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. the part to unpack, and, and I understand why you say this, and I don't think you're wrong, is that I think when, when President Trump was elected, there was this disbelief that how could someone like him get elected? And this notion that somehow anyone that voted for him had to be racist because of the candidate they were, they were, they were voting for. And I think the, where I, I agree with you that is wrong is to put this blanket statement against everyone that voted for him. But where I understand where that's coming from is that you're basically taking characteristics of the person and applying to every single person that votes for him. And this is where I, and because look, I know you and I have talked about this and even debated whether or not this notion of whether or not President Trump is racist or not, right? And, and I know we have different points of view on this. My point of view has been with him this entire time is that he, for if you use race baiting, if you behave a certain way, then whether or not your thought is to be racist, your action make you look like you're racist. So therefore, that's all I could actually go for because I can't actually you know, dig into your soul and, and thought in terms of how you really feel about things. And I think that got somehow pushed on every single person that voted for him. And I think the other thing that I definitely have come to a different point of view from even talking to you is this notion that people have made the clear distinction between voting for the platform of a party versus voting for the person. Now, there... I think one thing that this election has actually proven is that for some of those Republicans that were turned, by the way, from the suburbs, it has a lot more to do that they will do that maybe to an extent, right? Because that's what basically what happened. Folks that were, that did go uh, um, Trump in the last election now went Biden. And part of it seems to be folks that were, you know, higher wealth in the suburbs who tend to be, you know, vote Republican now went Democrat. And I think maybe for those group of people that they did make that, that change is that you can do that only to a certain extent. Because at some point, the person actually does get in the way of supporting the party. Yeah, I think I think people, you know, what I try to do is give credit to to folks as individuals, and that's a philosophical, ideological, maybe difference that I have with other folks. Um, but so I always look at it from the perspective of of an individual guy who gets up, goes to work, does what he does. And then how they actually think, I fundamentally believe people are generally good. I fundamentally believe that the country is generally good and that people don't get up with a desire to kind of hate or, or abuse other people or whatever. So my starting point is maybe more optimistic than than perhaps other other people. I think there's good evidence for that, but, I, but maybe it's more optimistic. So again, my starting point is like they're looking at what impacts their life, what impacts their family. And they look out at what pol- uh, politicians are saying, but they also look at what politicians are doing, right? Because every time that I hear about, again, the 70 million, you know, uh, people who voted for, or 60 some odd million, now it's 70 something million, but uh, in 2016, 
I, I don't believe those people are racist by any stretch, especially not the ones who are people of color who belong to these groups. And I, I think saying that kind of really diminishes them as being somehow just too ignorant to know what's going on. And that to me, just it, it just doesn't follow because, you know, I, I just, my, again, my orientation is people are not that way from the get-go. And I, I think that we can look at, you said, look at candidates and what they do. And eventually, if you do it enough, you kind of become that. And I think that's an interesting point, but I, I think we also have to look at the way that people have governed and the and what the things that they are that they have done, right? So how do you look at something? And I don't know how much of this stuff gets undone, um, but how do you look at say uh, funding for historically black colleges and universities? How do you look at uh, public, um, you know, social justice and prison reform? How do you look at you know uh, at those particular things? Those are the actual things that were done. In the context of what you said, which is like, well, if you say these things enough, then that just means you are. Because we, I feel like you have to look at those as action or part of the action as well. For, for sure. And I think it becomes a weighing all those actions together, right? Because I frankly believe you can be racist and do things to support diverse people through financial because you feel like the, the upside is on the other side for you, right? So the example that I've always used, and I think when we talked about this, I think you and I have actually discussed the notion that if you're a successful business person, it's just not smart business to be racist. Which, and I get it like in this in this face value I get, but I always think about someone like Donald Sterling, right? To me, he's a perfect example of someone who's basically outside of the real estate, which is the way that he actually gained wealth. Is he's by the way for those of you that don't know, he was the owner of the Clippers for a, for a long time. Now his sort of limelight and success a lot had to do with him owning this basketball team in which the lion's share of players were African American. Yet this guy was super, super racist. Yet most of his employees that were part of his team were African-American. He was part of a league that, frankly, like benefits significantly by supporting African-American players. So everything about his personal wealth, or at least a big chunk of it, because we'll say real estate is actually a big part of his, his personal wealth, but a big part of his personal wealth, success, fame, is all driven by work, supporting, collaborating with African-American players, administration, et cetera. Yet the guy's still super racist. So... That's where I make the distinction. I, I don't want to take away from Trump and some of the things that he did do. We've talked about social justice reform. It's one of the things I, I definitely give him credit prison for. Prison reform. Prison reform, sorry. Yeah. Not social. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Prison reform as, as something that he uh, that he did. And I agree with you on that. Um, I just think that the, 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 the it, I don't think it necessarily negates some of his behavior. And frankly, which is where I think he's done it upon to himself in many ways. Because he, he almost can't get out of the way of himself and actually undermines his own policy plenty of times, even when he makes good decisions, is his personal rhetoric, his how he behaves, what he says, what he shares, uh, all undercut, I think, a lot of his actually strong messages. I think we'll go even further because the reality is one thing that when you look at the breakout of how these, these, these groups voted is that you're right. Like either they're all racist or now we have more racist, like diverse people. Probably not. I think that's highly unlikely to be, to be the case. You have a lot of different people that do look at President Trump and think of, well, how does this benefit me personally? And does his policy outweigh him as a person, him as in beyond his policy action? Because there's, you could, there you could probably pick apart the things that are good and things that are obviously I wouldn't agree with. The other thing is philosophically, I also I agree with the premise that you said that someone can be in their heart a racist and still do things that are beneficial to the people that they're being racist about that mm. philosophically and logically makes sense so too is it, so too does the inverse somebody saying that they're not yeah, or sure. being you know ultra woke and nevertheless being you know driving a lot of the kind of racism 
which we've talked about before on the show, that I've felt that I always feel is much more insidious than than I guess how people may perceive racism historically, but this racism of just low expectations, of low engagement, of this sort of othering of like, yeah, we've got our thing and we're successful and we got to try a little too hard to figure what you guys are up to, so we better not try. That kind of racism, you can say that you're all, you know, give to the right causes and wear the right t-shirts and have the right bumper bumper sticker, but you can still have that. And I definitely know that that that's real. So I think philosophically it follows that if one can be true, the other one can be true as well. Agree. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I mean, we, we talked about this, uh, the last time we were talking about this, this, um, open letter to Hollywood, it's a great example of that, right? Because when you think about an industry that it's going to be for the most, most part leaning, you know, fairly liberal, fairly left. And that, in general, wouldn't necessarily have those kind of conversations associated with that group. There still is a lack of opportunity for a lot of diverse people in that in that same industry. So, obviously, something's wrong there, right? And whether it's pure racism or 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 not, whether it's simply just not knowing who to connect with. Although, I, at some point, I I can't really give that too much too much credence. I don't know if I could put it all on racism, but there's an element there that obviously stops from having some of these same decision makers create more opportunity for diverse people. I know we're going to talk about diversity of thought ourselves and also with our guest uh, coming up, Rose Atkins-Holtz. We'll tell you all about her and obviously she'll speak for herself when she joins us from London. But one of the things that I found really fascinating about some of the exit poll data that, that you were going through is the actual makeup and mix of ideological spectrum for, for both of the candidates. So, and, and the, the, the one that struck me the most was in the case of Trump, 10% of people who, de- who describe themselves as liberals voted for Trump. 35% would describe themselves as moderates and of, I'm sorry, of who describe themselves as moderates and 85% of who describe themselves as conservatives voted for Trump. The liberal one, and even to some extent, the moderate one jumped out at me. And, and I, this is a question for you. Because it ties into maybe this diversity of thought. Do you think that the ten percent of the liberals who vo- who or people who describe themselves as liberals who voted for Trump are people who are fearful of the loss of some of the sort of rights that we've historically had here, like free speech, things like that? What would explain that to you? Uh, I think that becomes um, to me as more much more of an issue driven vote, probably right. It, it, I think it all comes down to. What issue is most important to you, right? I mean, I think one of the themes that, and I heard actually, I was I was listening to this morning to the the Daily, right, the the, the podcast by um, by the New York Times, and they were talking about a lot of this sort of, uh, in part, what was so wrong about how the polls were so wrong yet again, which is an interesting dynamic in terms of why they think that could be the case. Um, but as it relates to people, to some of the decision as it relates to to uh, to why vote for Trump or not. In some cases, they were saying, look, you may have some cases where you have people that are more, have higher income, more educated, that frankly have the luxury to vote on person and not necessarily on issues, right? Or someone that is basically, if they truly believe that Trump is the best person for the economy. So the economy, I think, would be probably a good example of that. If someone truly believes that no matter what, Trump, whether they like him or not, just they're just a better person positioned to help the U.S. recover in its economy, then they're going to vote for that person. Right, it, it may or may not. It could be related to what you're saying, whether it could be freedom of speech or other other kind of issues. I don't know. I think that's where you have to really start unpacking and understanding what are those people actually voting for. That is that one issue that is most important that they best see with Trump, regardless of him. And I think that, and, and frankly, I think that's the, the the big summary when it comes to to President Trump is that I think for him, for as much energy as he is able to create, people vote for him in spite of him. 
And somehow it's also because of him, because at the same time, he gets people really energized, really energized, but it makes it really, really hard for those that are not in the extremes to actually vocally be able to, to say that they support Trump because he's just so out there plenty of times. So I think in those cases, I think that group of liberals, my guess is the folks that are voting on a specific issue and voting in spite of him, but because really one of the issues that he, that he supports. The degree of enthusiasm that he drove, I mean, across the board for him and enthusiasm against him, because yeah. as we've talked about, I mean, look, let's be honest. News, which in a way is really a blessing, hopefully gets to return to its rightful place of being kind of interesting, but generally dull because, you know. I mean, no offense, but Biden is about as exciting as watching like milk curdle. You know what I mean? So it's not going to be interesting content on any level, but it may return kind of the idea of politics and journalism, maybe more importantly, to where it should be, which is, you know, kind of reporting on the facts and that kind of thing. But your point is well taken that enthusiasm, if anybody proved the enthusiasm can make the polls wrong, it was this uh, Trump in the sense that that more people that wanted him and a lot more people that were wanted to break, you know, crawl over broken glass to vote against him. But neither of them were, were, were had any other part of their calculus that had, you know, that wasn't Trump. So, yeah. I mean, he proved yeah. out enthusiasm as a strategy. That, I mean, for me, that's that's super clear. It is. That's why I think when we talked about, I think last week as it relates to, you know, what do you think about polls and how do you fix that? Look, in many, in many ways, and I, you know, I was hearing about it today, this morning, so much, so much of it is just driven by Trump himself and the factor that he creates. And also the issue that for those that actually respond to the polls, how willing are they actually able, or are they to say that they support Trump? Knowing all of the, even with themselves, I mean, they have some concerns themselves of actually being too publicly aligned with him. And then the ones that do, you get a sort of the extreme ones that is, you know, that's waving the flags and it has in the back of their truck, which is, which is fine. But that's a whole different group, right? And still a, a minority, I would say, of the folks that actually supported Trump. Sure. On the, on the race thing, just mm-hmm. to kind of finish that off. Yeah. I think a couple of, of key things here. One is, when you look on Trump on average, he gained about 3.8 percentage points uh, in places where more than 20% of the eligible electorate was of Hispanic origin, which is really interesting, right? So that's this is the dynamic in, in Texas. This is dynamic in Florida, right? Beyond that. So high composition Latino areas had a bigger – He had, had a big an age. actual jump. Now, when you unpack that from the, from the actual uh, exit polls, you see now a, a big difference between Latino men and Latino, and Latino women, right? So Latino women – Biden um, actually did about the same um, uh, as as Hillary Clinton at plus forty two percent percentage point versus versus Trump uh, versus forty four for 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 Clinton. But for Latino men, this is where Biden lost more support. Right, Clinton did about thirty one percent thirty one percent higher than than uh, than Trump, mm-hmm. and Biden did about twenty five percent higher than higher than Trump. So this is actually a clear place where you've seen a, a pretty significant difference. Um, not necessarily half, but you know, close to it, of men really Latino men being the ones that actually drove that gain for for Trump as it relates to the Latino vote. Well, and on the black side as well, because you, you yeah, gave similar the, dynamic. Yeah, you, you gave the aggregate, which was twelve percent, but that was almost twenty percent of black men is yeah. what drove that that increase. And what's interesting is the difference between twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, right? So for black women, Clinton was like almost ninety, like ninety percent of that right. vote was was for Clinton. Uh, for Biden, it was about 83%. So some loss there, but still really high. For black men, it was, for Clinton, it was 69, uh, plus 69. And for Biden, it was plus 62. So it's just, it's, just a, it's just a lower number altogether, right? So you are seeing the separation between men and women for, for black and Latinos that 
I'm not, that one yeah. I don't I don't fully understand why that's such a big difference between the two. Um, my guess is some some something has to do with with uh, being pro choice or not. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure I mean that's you know part of the factor for the women, but but it's not as clear to me as to why such a big difference in in terms of men supporting supporting Trump in this yeah, case for I, Latino and black men. Yeah, I don't know specifically. I mean, there's some we can probably have a show just about that supposition, but um, I do think that that the trend among uh, African Americans trending Republican and conservative, I do see that continuing. I think if I was a, if, if you know, if you're a Democratic strategist, a Democrat strategist right now, thinking about the results in the exit polls, you you have some work to do in the Hispanic community, especially in higher density areas. But a lot of that can be, in my mind, attacked by these kind of, you know, bedfellows of socialism or perceived socialism being kind of muted. I think that's a big driver. So you can kind of solve that. And plus, you're starting from a base where, you know, roughly one out of three Latinos is going to vote Republican kind of generally. So yeah, it's on the margin higher. It's not a huge deal. The black thing is a big deal. For me, I think that's a big deal. When you have in basically two election cycles, right, if you count uh, Romney, uh, Romney to Trump, and Trump to Biden, you basically have a 100% increase, 100% increase. And that, again, when these numbers are so minute in these major swing states and, and, and city centers, that's a big difference. And that's something that you have to try to attack and solve and better understand. And for that, I'm actually really happy because I do believe, as I've said many times, that it's a very easy vote to take for granted when you get 90 some percent. And it's another example of why having diverse perspectives and not being able to just expect somebody to do something by the way they look is a good thing. Keeps everybody on their toes and keeps policymakers like actually trying to earn their keep, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I agree with you on it being a good thing. Although I'm I feel a lot less drastic about how big of a deal it is that it's got to 12%. And the reason for that is that, once again, looking at the at the stats here of how the African-American vote actually voted Republican. If you think about the last time it was this high, it was with George W. Bush, 10%. Then after that, you had Obama, right? So you completely understand why that would swing so hard in what direction. In 2008, it was 4% of the of the African-American vote voted Republican, right? Mm-hmm. 2000, from, from 11 to 4? From 11 to 4, mm-hmm. right? And look, part of it can say, like, the big difference is you had an African-American, you know, candidate for the well, very first clearly, time. So for that sure, made a right? difference. Yeah. It went from 4 to 2012 was 6%, right? So that makes sense. It could have stayed, you know, pretty close there in terms of what it was the previous two years. And then mm-hmm. you're seeing sort of this, I think, natural rebalancing that's going to happen because the reality, you shouldn't really think about this group being as completely homogeneous. You're going to have folks that are going to be a lot more conservative that are going to be very pro-life, and that's fine. And those folks are going to end up being more Republican. So I actually think is now that I see the data, as especially looking at as sort of a, a lot you know broader range of actual um, of actual presidential you know voting for for the black vote. If it feels like it's it's getting back to its natural number, which should be in that 11, 12 percent, which is what it has been, right? So before that. It had, you know, I, I talked about being 8% and then it was kind of a 12, 11, 10. That's kind of where it's been sort of historically. I think it was the, it, I think well, it was the histo- Obama effect. Historically after the 60s. I mean, after if you go the, back yeah, to earlier. After I, the 60s, correct, correct. I could say that the natural number should be 40%. Correct, correct. Right. So, yeah, after the 60s, correct. So after the 60s, it was somewhere in that 12 to 15, and then it kind of started dropping down. And then you had the Obama effect that really pushed it in one direction. And now it seems kind of coming back to maybe what should be its more – natural place in terms of the breakout between, you know, between the vote. And I do think it's a, it's a, it's a better thing ultimately for, for the African-American vote that where both parties feel like they have to earn it or they can earn it. 
I think both have the same kind of outcome. Well, the beautiful thing about this question and this subject matter is that um, we get a variety of different perspectives. And in this particular case, talking about this subject, I think it's particularly meaningful to get the perspective of a black person and a very, very accomplished one at that. And so I'd love to transition our conversation to um, our chat with Rose Atkins-Holtz, and we can ask her some of these very provocative questions and get her take. What do you think, Jesus? Sounds great. Rose Atkins-Holtz, welcome to the Diversity Remix. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I mentioned at the top of the show that, um, you know, we always envisioned this podcast would have the benefit of voices um, to add to the conversation and voices from a diverse perspective. And so, um, you know, we we're joking earlier that you are the inaugural um, guest on the show. So congratulations <laughs> on that. We're, we're very excited. Yeah, well, the bar is high. Me too. So thank you for having me as the inaugural person. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Rose, you're joining us from London, and um, I know I won't uh, do it justice, but what I know about you, and this, um, a lot of it from a recent feature that you had in Glamour magazine, is, you know, you're an Angelino who is now on, in some way, shape, or form an, an Anglophile, right? So, you, you know, started in Santa Monica, you're in London now, have a, a very illustrious background in, um, in business, Hollywood Reporter, NBC Universal, Sundance Institute, and now you're the CEO uh, and founder of a company called Screen Hits, which we'd love to hear, obviously, about in, as we kind of unfurl this conversation, a little bit more about that. But I'd love to just maybe start, since you know, we've been talking a lot about the, um, the election, obviously, I'd love to just start with your perspective as an American living now, as an, you know, sort of an expat, your perspective of what the election looks like from that vantage point. Yes, I mean, I, you know, just, I, I mean, looking at it from over here um, and just kind of hearing a lot of people's feedback, you know, a lot of people that I've heard from, they like Trump, which is, you know, very random. And then another group of people hate him. I think the biggest issue is some people that did support him. They didn't like his personality. They didn't, they thought he was completely politically incorrect. He was arrogant. He was racist, but they felt that he did deliver on some numbers and he got some things done. And the economy was doing well. He was bringing international businesses back, forcing um, expats to, uh, you know, announce when they have international companies, foreign bank accounts. He, you know, the the black unemployment um, over the past four years has actually been the lowest since it's been since um, 1989. I think it was at 6.1% in 2019. And by the end of 2019, it was at 5.5%, I think. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that people feel that he's done, but people also couldn't stand him. He was an embarrassment, they felt. He was almost childlike. And it was like, how can we have somebody representing this great country? And so a lot of people were that wanted to vote for him didn't vote for him. Um, and I think it made a lot of people that were voting for him in the last election kind of either not vote this time or switch sides. How, how, how common was a converse, by the way, incredible assessment. Yeah. But, and it's awesome to get that perspective as somebody sort of, you know, connected, but also an outside looking in. A lot of these conversations, did they happen in the context of your kind of business life or, 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 or was the subject more taboo? Was it a curiosity? Like how, how did it, how does it happen in, in sort of the, the corridors of business, the kind of analysis that you just described? Was that, did that happen there or was it more relegated to kind of news opinions? 
No, I mean, it was, it was more socially, those conversations that I had within my network. I think in the business side, people don't want to get involved because people have their own viewpoints. They don't want to automatically be judged. You know, if they are a conservative, if they are a Republican, oh, then you're a racist. And, and so and people don't want to get in the right. position to have to constantly defend themselves. Or, you know, if they are a black person and they vote Republican, you know, they have to hear, well, you shouldn't because they don't do anything. For, I mean, the whole thing is just um, it's a judgmental thing by, you know, talking about politics. So I think in business, especially here in the UK, is taboo and people do not talk about it. One of, one of the last point here, Jesus, because I know you're, you're chomping at the bit, but one, one thing you just reminded me of, Rose, is when we were thinking about putting this podcast together, we kind of thought about this idea of these different spheres of our lives, you know, politics and spirituality and business and religion and all of these things by virtue of social media and other reasons increasingly seems to get mashed together, right? I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago where giving somebody, and it probably is still good advice, you tell people, hey, you never talk about politics or religion at work. But now it just seems so unlikely when we all know so much about each other and we're all on each other's feeds that we can see into those kind of things. Do you think that's true? Do you think that that's happening or do you think that's just sort of a, an artifact of the kind of social space that we have right now, but it'll eventually go back to the way it was? I mean, I could talk about in my world, in my experience, um, we don't join each other's social networks. I mean, my, my co-founder, Alex, who's been working with me for eight years, I mean, we're not on each other's, you know, Facebook or even LinkedIn pages. Um, I believe in giving the um, employee um, privacy. They should have their social life that doesn't interfere with their work life. If they're doing their job, getting things done, I really don't care what they're doing outside if they don't want to share it with me. And again, I think having certain political affiliations or religious beliefs, it, it's that person's private personal business. And if they choose to share it, then that's, that's their prerogative. But I don't really encourage it so much because I do find mm. that people are very judgmental and people should not be judged for their personal, you know, their personal beliefs when they're in the workplace. They should be judged on their work. Here, here. That's, wow, Rose, you have a, a super interesting. I mean, first of all, I think your assessment of, of Trump is, is right on, right? We literally were just talking about this, is that even in the cases where people agree with policy, the personal behavior just makes it hard to be very public about it, right? And many times it feels like it undermines that policy. And I think the way you described it, both actually giving attribution to the good things that came through his administration and obviously some of the challenges that are there is what makes this sort of dynamic so so like so different. But the one thing I actually kind of go back and, and talk to you a little bit about is as it relates to, you know, when you're talking about the, the type of business that you've built and how you, you know, handle the employees there in terms of separating sort of the personal versus the business side of it. Is that more a function of your specific company or is that also a function of the culture there in London on the business culture? Because I think the thing that we've talked about quite a bit, at least here in the States, is that what feels like very much a trend, and by the way, we're jaded in the sense that we are very involved in the media tech industry, which tends to be an industry that tend to be a little bit more, maybe not a little bit, way more liberal. Um, and therefore, you're seeing a lot more of this combination of social causes, political leanings, a lot of things that historically had stayed outside of business, now being really being intertwined with business to the point where employees are demanding of their leadership to take actual stance as a company. And if they don't, you're seeing a lot of companies actually are really struggling with that. How do you see that? And I'm, I am curious to whether what you described earlier, was that specifically for your company or do you see that as a broader trend more there in, more there in, in London? 
Um, okay, so my husband's in a totally different industry. He's in shipping, and he is very private, and, and, and he keeps his beliefs to himself. Now, obviously, here in, in Europe, we had a very divisive um, political um, you know, election. Uh, Brexit was a massive pain point for a lot of people. It, it really brought up people's emotions, and it's like if you voted for Brexit, you were a racist, horrible, evil person. If you were a Remainer, you were you know, just on you know a different you know a different realm you were like oh i'm for the people i, I have i'm hum humane i care about people i'm not a racist so this became a great divide and it became something more than what the actual political message was and people would quit jobs they would fire people they all sorts of horrible things and this started to creep in to the workplace and it created a lot of problems and I know at my husband's company, they try to keep that separate. He tried to keep his opinions about it completely separate. Um, of course, it, it pulled out and people wanted to know, well, what, is, what, what side are you on? What side are you on? Sure. And I right. don't really encourage that behavior in um, Screen Hits TV. I mean, I do talk about diversity issues um, as they apply because I think it's important to to recognize and to point out some things that people may not be aware of. But that's as far as it goes from a political standpoint. How much of that is based on the way that you were brought up? I know you mentioned um, in your in the piece on glamour, when you grew up here in L.A., you didn't really see a lot. Maybe that was more, again, specific to Santa Monica, but you didn't really see a lot of folks who look like you. But your parents kind of instilled in you this idea that, look, whatever happens, it's not based on how you look. So, so you know, how much of what you just described is, is sort of part and parcel to that to that kind of upbringing? Well, I think a lot of it. I think that we really learn... We shape who we are from a very young age until we're six, seven years old. I mean, that's kind of like the foundation of what we build, up, uh, build upon. And, you know, people underestimate the power of children. But, you know, at five, we're quite intelligent human beings just trapped in a very small body with the mind that hasn't developed mm -hmm. yet to express ourselves. But all those emotions and feelings that are bubbling inside us, that's our foundation that we build off of. So I think it has helped and it has giving me, it's given me the kind of like, well, I don't take a no for an answer kind of thing. I could really care less. What obstacles, I'll find a way around it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. I think that's part of the reason, I'm sure, is is the dynamics of why you've been successful, right? This ability to kind of get, you know, push through, um, getting the no's, getting the rejections, you know. But I guess at that point, you know, we, and this is the part where we were having a conversation before in a previous episode, is that, when you think about some of these groups that are, and I'm kind, of, kind of taking it back to some of the, the dynamics that happens here in the States, you know, I think a lot, number of the sort of VC firms, funds, we're seeing a lot of different funds and and basically allocating specific funds specifically to support diverse entrepreneurs, right? And many sort of coming out very publicly saying, we're going to be doing more to support diversity. Um, or creating an entire fund. Or creating an entire fund. Yeah. What, what is sort of your thoughts on that? Because we have, we tend to have sort of mixed feelings about some of these efforts, right? To the degree that they sort of stay as, as efforts that are, that are basically just checking the box. They're not sort of, you know, following through in terms of going beyond maybe have some allocated of, of capital to actually supporting causes that more directly will support and benefit diverse people. What are your thoughts as, as you've seen some of this action happen? And is, is that sort of the same dynamic also happening out in, in London? Um, yes, it is happening out in London. I think it's happening around the world. Um, so as you guys know, in the 90s, there was affirmative action in the United States, which was basically put into position um, to give you know, people an opportunity to get these jobs at these, these companies. And 
and it kind of got a lot of backlash. I mean, also from the, the diverse communities, like, well, are you only hiring me because I fit a box? I mean, am I not qualified? But the reality is, is of course they were qualified. They worked three times harder to get, you know, the grades, you know, you know, they, they, they could have written the same essay as like a friend and then maybe the friend gets an A and they get a C, but it's the exact same essay because the teacher maybe had some unconscious bias or racist or whatever. Um, and so, you know, affirmative action was completely the, the focus of it and the, the importance of it was ripped apart and torn apart. And it started to become like, well, actually, this isn't what it's supposed to be doing. And it's making people feel inferior. It's making people feel like they only got a job because they are of a certain skin color. And I, I don't I disagree with that. I mean, at the time, I kind of maybe thought that as well. I was young. But when I look back at how hard I had to work or how I was possibly, not possibly, I was more qualified than my, my boss at Universal Pictures, and yet she was taking my, my clients and, and taking them as hers because she couldn't bring on a single client. And, you know, I didn't understand. Why is she getting paid a lot more than I am? Why is she even in this position? She has no experience. And I have all this experience. I'm more qualified. And I've done, done deals when she's never done them. And perhaps that's because she had a friend there. Perhaps it's because they just felt she had the right look. Who knows what it is? But having something in place like affirmative action forces them to say, well, you know what? I don't really care about your unconscious bias. I don't really care if you're racist. You need to hire somebody that can do this job. And there are so many qualified people that just get overlooked all the time. And that's just, that's not fair. I, mean, I have friends that went to Harvard and to Columbia that can't get jobs or they're not getting promoted or they don't, you know, after two, three years that, you know, well, Lehman Brothers is not here anymore, but after two, three years, oh, you're not gonna really yeah. grow in the company. You're out on your own. And, you know, now with the whole BLM, I think that people were, you know, first saying, oh, let's make a donation to NAACP. You know, we're going to make a do donation to like this organization. And that to me is just like just throw money at the problem, you know, just give yeah. it to them, right. let them deal with it, you know. But what does that actually solve? You know, it may help to solve some social issues, but does it actually change the landscape? And when I say change the landscape, I'm talking about a seat at the table. I'm talking about why are the people that can make a difference from the top up not in those positions? Is it not because there's not qualified people? There's a ton of people from all different backgrounds that are going to top universities and even like, you know, state level universities that are extremely ambitious and talented and creative. Why are they not getting that opportunity? And so now companies like Group M, WPP, Amazon, Netflix are saying, you know what? Let's just kind of go back through all those CVs and let's just look and just see where there are no like Latinos, African-Americans, like Asian right. people that actually have the qualifications. And what do you think they find? I think they find a ton of CVs where it's like, oh, my God, why was sure, this person right. never called in? And so fixing the problem is, you know, starting from the ground up with the VC community. OK, you know, there was one VC um, that has decided they don't want to feel forced to invest in, in people of color's businesses. They want to still make the right decisions to take people's money and invest in the best businesses. But what they have decided to do is to enforce that the businesses they do invest in hire a more diverse community and more, di more diverse staff. And that is solving the problem as well because it's giving people jobs, it's giving people um, an opportunity to learn and to grow and to maybe one day do their own company and business. 100%. There's a lot there's a lot there too. One of the, the very last thing you said Rose actually reminds us of a conversation we had maybe two shows ago about the Yale endowment, the Yale University mm -hmm. endowment, which is 32 billion dollars, the second largest endowment I think in the world, number one being Harvard. And the steps that they had taken to do exactly what you just said, right? So the, the basically the leader of the endowment said, we're going to give you this money to these different money managers, but we're going to do it, you know, we're going to give it to you 
in a way with a qualification that you guys have to actually be more diverse and how that was a good thing. But, you know, for me personally, the challenge is that it seems like that's one part of what should be a kind of multi-part step. And I just know the reality of business. A lot of times people are either happy enough to just check the box or they have good intentions, but the reality of it is everybody gets busy. So if I check the one box and I can kind of forget about the rest, I do. Uh, you know, j- just one quick question uh, on this, and then we can kind of dive into other stuff because you said a lot and I want to definitely unpack it. But one question on that dynamic, that last one that I just mentioned about kind of setting aside the money for making sure that these these investments are, you know, made up with diverse people. Do you see that there is kind of a uh, potentially a broader strategy that could be brought to bear as well. Like for instance, we talked about, hey, one thing is to make the in, the people who are going to manage the investments themselves more diverse, i.e. make your, your hedge funds and VCs more diverse. Then it's about what kind of founders you're investing in. Those people perhaps should be more diverse as well. But ultimately the problems that those businesses are trying to solve should also have an impact for diverse communities. So kind of seeing it more as a continuum and less about, you know, sort of these easy fixes, because certainly as Americans, we have a pension for easy, easy fixes. I'm curious what you think. Well, I don't think investing in, you know, co- companies, you know, with, you know, female entrepreneurs or people of color that have not even been able to receive a portion of that. And there's a lot of great companies that should have received investment. I think that uncovering those and, and seeing that they've been overlooked and investing in that. I don't think that that's checking a box. I think that that's actually doing something about the problem. I think that mm-hmm. the accelerators that a lot of these companies have they need to be more diverse in it. And that's like the best place they can be diverse because a lot of people will argue, okay, well, I'm looking for like, you know, companies with, you know, diverse founders, but I don't, I don't see them. I don't find them. And that's because a lot of them don't have the, the, the chance. They don't know. They don't have the right contacts. They don't know how to right. go and pitch to investors. They, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have that. So, you know, where do you get that from? And if the accelerator program didn't just take the Ivy Leagues that had you know four to, four years to six years of um, education experience to learn that, yeah. and maybe gave the accelerator programs to people that actually have a brilliant idea. They just don't know how to make it come to life. That's also really solving the problem. Which then they build the companies that are investable later down the line. Um, and then yeah, I mean at the end of the day, we're all like trying to run a business and make money. And what we want to do is hire the best people. And I don't just say well you know. I'm not going to hire somebody just to like check a box. I'm going to hire the mm-hmm. best people possible. But I, you know, I even experienced and covered this at my company where, you know, someone who is, I, I definitely will say unconsciously racist because they're a good friend of mine. They're an amazing person. But, you know, when he's looking at CVs for just internship level positions, you know, he overlooked a few and mm-hmm. I found two that were overlooked. And one was somebody that worked at NBC Universal, had an amazing CV. And the only reason I, um, noticed this was because the person emailed back and happened to email me and just said, I just want to make sure that you received my CV. And she goes, I emailed the second that the ad was posted, I emailed. And, you know, she had a a name that wasn't English and she didn't go to Oxford or or St. Andrews or Cambridge, but she should have been called in because she had the experience and she Mm -hmm. wasn't. So I called her in and she was more qualified than any of the interns that we hired. And so I looked at it and said, you know what? This has to stop. And I kind of explained to the team what was going on, what was happening, um, why was this person overlooked? And I brought them on. And this person has become one of the top employees of the company. I mean, she's just amazing. And so I think it's, it's doing that. And it's kind of going back in and, and really looking to uncover. But you're not going to hire somebody that doesn't have the qualification, no matter what skin color they are. And it should never be based off of skin color or sex. It should be based off of skill set. Right. I think the challenge that you get into, this is why when you were talking earlier about affirmative action, you know, part of the, the, 
the knock that it got that it got quite a bit is because I think in many ways it ended up getting described that way. We just we just said right where people look at it like only for the someone's skin color is the only reason why they're getting hired. You know, and and look, yeah. I would even agree the fact that in essence having to have something like affirmative action, which is driven by having a certain percentage of people um, be given an opportunity because of ethnic you know background, et cetera, is not a good thing to to have in general. But it's also many times a necessary evil because without it, it's like, well, what's the alternative, right? When you start looking at the actual data and look at the level of number of opportunities that people actually are getting, if you don't have some kind of forcing mechanism to drive that kind of change, it's just not going to happen. You know, we've talked about this in the context of diverse representation in boards, right? We were discussing that here in California. Um, and in general, some of, the, some of the industries where you see African-American, Latinos, so significantly under-indexed in some of, the, some of the industries like advertising, et cetera. I think that's part of the challenge. I think the one thing, though, and I heard you say it earlier, and it's, it's one of those things that I, I know is not said a lot, but I definitely can see people thinking it, which is this notion that somehow investing in diverse entrepreneurs means not investing in the best ideas. Like if those two things are somehow contradicting. And I think part of the challenge with that is that it has a lot more to do with, look, the reality is, and I think between the three of us, we've all been involved in this in this area and race capital. And I've seen, look, it's not necessarily always the best idea that gets capital. Let's be honest about that, right? A lot no. has to do with actual who you know, what your network is. Networks. If you think about almost all, every single VC, they, they function on, on deal flow, right? How much deal flow are they getting? Part of the reason why individual investors like to get attached themselves to VCs because they'll get better access to deal flow. Literally that. Better access to more opportunities coming through the door. Yeah. Not necessarily that, that they're going to find the best things, but by having that sort of dynamic, it, they're able to sort of look at more kind of deals. And I think part of the challenge here is that if you don't have that kind of forcing mechanism, even at those levels, it, you can be looking at ideas, especially for early stage companies, that frankly, some of it has to do with luck, just investing on the right team, a little bit of timing, some dynamics, right? How many companies launched uh, at the beginning of the year or at the end of last year that had no idea COVID was coming? And either because of COVID are now like complete all-stars or because of COVID have completely gone away. Yeah. Right. And and some of that, you know, I'm sure it's based on team. Some of it being some smart moves, but not entirely. Right. So, yeah, it, it, I, you know, when I hear you say that, I definitely think that that's probably a sentiment that is more, that is actually felt by more people than not. This idea that those two thoughts actually contradict each other. Um, And I really, you know, I I don't know what the solve is other than to actually have some of these forcing mechanisms to actually create those opportunities but I think the bigger thing is, is is having the support structure to make sure that when you are making those investments, you're giving those companies a real shot to be successful. Because I think the worst thing that actually happens is that you, you create these commitments based on ethnic group, et cetera, and then some of those investments fail. All of a sudden, like, yeah, you see, this is why we should have never done this to begin with. I know, right? I, I met these guys from Impact X. They're, they're a fund that... Um, um, support in um, like colored, like not colored, what do you call it? Like multicultural um, entrepreneurs, right? So people mm-hmm. of color. And they, I went to meet with them, explain the frustrations. We kind of all talked about the frustrations and, you know, how the, you know, the VCs are like, well, maybe we'll invest, but you need to get a lead investor, blah, blah, blah. And then they never really invest. And then they invest in a competitor that hasn't even really launched a product yet. And they were also like in a, in a, in a really difficult space because they said, you know what, we're in a difficult space because, you know, we don't have this massive fund. We have a few, we have like 10 million quid and 10 million pounds for American listeners. And we're trying to, um, you know, trying to make the best investments, like 200,000 here, 500,000 there. But we can't do it without having the support of a major VC. Because what happens is we give our money to these companies, then they can't get a VC because 
They don't give money to people of color. And then they can't raise money and then the business fails. So then we've just kind of thrown away, you know, $500,000. And I completely understand their situation. But now they can't invest in people of color because they need a VC firm to kind of come in and back that entrepreneur to say, actually, it's okay, you can invest in them. So there again, you have like this gatekeeper. And and how do you fix that? And I think that they have to... They have to look. I mean, there are companies with intelligent people that have ideas. So they have to ask themselves, why are we not investing in, in these companies? And maybe having someone on the board, or having a board of people that are more diverse can actually look at these opportunities for their portfolio yeah. in a different way. And if you have to Absolutely. check a box and say, okay, yeah, I'm getting somebody on here that's you know from all these different cultures to give me a different perspective, they're going to get a different portfolio of companies that you're supporting. One, yeah. of, one of the principles, Rosa, we talk about all the time is this idea of changing your watering holes as a, you know, kind of guidance that we give to people just in general. It's all the same things you just talked about, right? It's like, hey, the last 10 people I hired were from Cambridge and Oxford and whatever. Well, here's four other schools that you should be looking at as well as part of that mix to kind of break out of that, the importance of kind of changing those watering holes and what that actually leads to. I'm curious because I know we don't we don't have you for, for, for much longer, but I'd love for you to talk about a little bit the journey for screen hits and how much of these things you ran into, are running into, have overcome. Like talk to us a little bit about that chronology um, and maybe share a bit about what screen hits is for the benefit of the audience as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, just quickly what screen hits is, it's um, a platform that lets you integrate your existing streaming app. So Um, If you have like a Netflix or an Amazon or a Disney or a Hulu, instead of having to open up one app and another to to see what's available, you put them all under one app and you can search across all of them in one place uh, and and watch it from there. Um, And so it just organizes everything. Um, And my company started more as a business to business content monetization platform um, in the industry. And it was helping, you know, big distributors, people that had films or TV shows to sell them internationally to different TV channels. And it was like an online marketplace. So when I came up with the idea in New York, um, you know, my background has always been working as an executive for these companies. And even though I studied business administration, I just never learned about raising funding. I don't know why that wasn't part of the curriculum, but anyway, it wasn't. And, um, but I was surrounded by people that, you know, like Cyrus that, you know, created ZocDoc and, you know, this is my friend Ahmad who was at Blackstone. And they helped me put together my business plan. I said, it's a great idea. I think it's amazing. And they helped me to write it. And they kind of told me the steps I needed to do. They said, you know, go to these different angel groups, you know, try to get in to pitch. And then it'll start happening from there. And then once I came to the UK and I had investors interested, I had somebody um, that worked in the banking industry that kind of came on as a partner of mine and helped me to lead those um, initial investor meetings. So I learned a lot and I was, it was lucky. But... I think it was also a way because of who my friends were, the the circles that I was in. If I didn't have that, I would have completely not known even where to start and where to go. Now, I did originally raise um, a couple hundred thousand pounds, so I think three to five hundred thousand pounds in the first um, 10 months of starting. Um, But that's not a lot for a B2B marketplace. And after that, I kind of got into trouble because I couldn't really find a VC. And, you know, we needed, it was like the chicken or the egg. You have to get the, to get the buyers, you need the content. To get the content, you need the buyers. So, you know, we had to work, you know, on a shoestring budget for a very long time. And I had to find ways to motivate my staff, to keep them there, to want to stay working while I tried to constantly raise investment. And I probably went to over 100 VCs. They all wanted to meet with me. They all thought the idea was fantastic. 
they were quite aggressive, some of them, in some of the meetings that I was in. And I was like, wow, I know my friend just sold a company to Yahoo, and he wasn't even asked this many questions, you know? And I, I was right. asked, like, crazy questions in, like, the very first, you know, pitch meeting. Um, and it was quite disheartening, and I just was like, I, I never felt so kind of, um, like, out of place. It was kind of like, like I'm going to ask you all these questions that you're not going to have the answer for, because actually no one would have the answer. And I, I remember one person from... Um, this VC, the, the owner was there. And he goes, why are you asking her that question? I wouldn't even know that question. You know, get that information from like the financial person. Like we're here to actually just kind of find out the business, not have Rose tell you how she's come up with a discounted cash flow, you know, right here on the spot. Right. So, um, and that was actually a question. Well, how did you come up with a discounted cash flow? Can you walk us through your formula? I mean, really? Um, so, you know, but I went to so many and what I found is that a lot of them were like, this is a great idea, but the always the, the message was like, but is she going to be the one to do it? Is she going to be the one to get Hollywood to want to work with her? Are they going to want to you know, funnel all of this through her company? Or are they going right. to want to do it through somebody else's company? And they ended up putting $20 million. Um, all these VCs that met with me two to three times was doing my due diligence. They invested in a competitor's company and, you know, $20 million. They weren't even launched yet. They were like in Asia. They didn't even bring their product to the UK. They didn't have the same partners as we had. They didn't have the same technology. Everything we do is in-house. They're out of house. And, you know, when we ended up getting, um, you know, Turner Broadcasting ended up working with us um, and having us build their, their online technology and white-labeled our tech, you know, the guy said, I mean, this is the best tech I have seen in the business, period. And we're switching with who we're with and we're going to you guys. And, you know, that was really impressive. It was, like, it was just for me to hear that because for so many years hearing from VCs, like, you know, there's something not, that's not good enough. And then all of a sudden hearing from one of the biggest studios in the world that your product is one of the best we have ever seen. It really changed things. And so I decided, you know, I have to just monetize. I have to find a way to get revenue and not depend on the VCs. Because no matter what they told me to do, um, get, get 100,000, you know, users, get this, get that, hit that. There goal. was always something more. Right. It, was, it, was just, it was always like, okay, well, you did all of it, but we still don't believe it. So that was an awful experience. And... But I kept going and I had a great team of people. I kept motivating my team. You know, I did have to let go of some amazing team members early on to keep the company going. Um, but then by holding on, you know, life just kind of worked because we built a, a name for ourselves in the industry. Turner really helped us. Um, they introduced us to different people. Um, and then when this whole thing happened about 18 months ago, we got a a call from one of our clients that wasn't really using our marketplace. And I just said, you know, well, why are you not using it to sell so much content? And they said, well, we have a mandate from pretty high up that we need to stop licensing our content, bring it all in house, because we're going to create our own streaming platform. And we started hearing this from all of our customers. It was Disney Plus, then NBC with Peacock, then Turner mm -hmm. with like HBO Max. And we thought, why don't we take our tech that's already there and instead of having it B2B, make it B2C. And we said, we already have this aggregator that is working brilliantly, that is beautiful. Why don't we aggregate all these streaming platforms into one to help with discovery? And that just kind of changed everything. And then something happened. <laughs> and then we just got all these amazing clients and, and investment. But it was eight years in the making. Wow. that's Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think it's also, it's really interesting, right, in terms of how you describe it, especially now. I was, I was just having this thought, I think maybe yesterday or the day before, and frankly, without really knowing this is the way your company did, but... I was like, yeah, well, I need to find. I was trying to find a piece of content, and I'm like, I have to open like three different apps to see where where it is, yeah. um, to be able to find it. So it is in this world where you're seeing more and more these OTT platforms kind of pop up. Um, I think the ability to be able to simplify that process across platforms it definitely feels like a smart 
smart move. But, but frankly, hearing you describe all this, on the one hand, I am obviously glad to hear how things are worked out. On the other hand, it's actually kind of sad to hear your story, right? It's sad in the sense that a good idea with smart tech, building it out, the, just the level of hurdles that you've had to kind of go through and how many other entrepreneurs that could have been in a similar situation would have just closed up shop and moved away, right? And I think this is the issue that we talk about, right? When we talk about how much, how more difficult it is many times for some of the diverse entrepreneurs to bring these businesses up, you know, I also think about, look, even having enough personal wealth to sustain yourself in that process becomes yeah. a really big barrier of entry, right? That's one of the challenges that I, that I definitely see with new entrepreneurs trying to launch companies that if you don't have enough of your own personal wealth to sustain yourself, I'm trying to build a company, like, good luck. It's going to be really, really tough. It's really and there's tough. like all these additional and sort of pressures that are in there that make it much more difficult for people to be able to 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 get it to get a business started. Well, I mean, yeah, it's funny you say that because when I was in New York, I I was going to start the company and I, I said, oh well, you know, I could just go to you know Silicon Valley or back to LA because it's a media company. And then I thought, oh my god, if I do that, the second it gets hard, I'm just going to go back and get a job at a studio. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> right. I have to go somewhere where there is a no plan B, where I literally. I'm driven to make it work. And, and when I came here, I, I did, I fell in love with this place. And, and I was like, oh my God, I have six months to raise funding. What am I going to do? And I, I did, I made it work, like literally five and a half months into my visa. <laughs> so there was no plan B. And then it's always been like, okay, you know, I'm going to make this work. And when you don't have a plan B and you are motivated, you, you find a way. Sometimes, sometimes it helps to not have that, uh, that option of a plan B or, a, you know, a kind of a security net to kind of get you to move forward into these things. But I understand, Jesus, the point that you made about, you know, in some respects, it's sort of a, it, it is a, uh, a tragedy that just good ideas and good people, you know, can't, given, given the, the networking and all the connectivity issues that we've already talked about, just can't get it going. Rose, um, just kind of finally, I'd love to, to get um, some thoughts from you on, you know, kind of words of wisdom, advice, thoughts on this moment that we're all kind of going through, especially as it relates to um, to some of the subjects that we've been talking about and how it relates to to entrepreneurship. For any people who are out there, you know, listening to this podcast, um, you know, touch on something that's been important for you um, that's made the difference. Um, just kind of as some as a parting thought. Yeah, I think I have a really great network around me. Um... During the, the ups and downs, um, you know, one of my business partners, you know, there was a moment where I just kind of said, I think that I've, I've hit the, um, the end and I don't mm -hmm. know what else I can do. I, I can't raise money. I can't go to anybody else. I can't continue to keep the staff. And, and um, he says, you know, I think you have one more thing up your sleeve. You know, there's that contact you were talking to at Turner a few months ago. Why don't you really just try one last time to really push through and try to make that work before you, you close down? And you know, this was a person that was, is very pessimistic. Um, they're English, so they're not um, always like, oh, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of, when, when he said this to me, I was like, oh my God, you've never once. So I really knew that he believed in me. And um, that made all the difference, that conversation. Because like two other of my um, investors who are on my board said, I think that you need to close it down. I think you, you know, you've hit the, the end. And this one person who's never who has always been just, you know, non-speculative, very to the point, encouraged me. And I think by having people around you that you really trust, that have your back, will make the difference when you're in those dark moments. And I think also you have to remember why you started the business, why you went into that. Um, 
and, and not let people discourage you because no one can really stand in your way but you. There's always, there's always a way around. And I think it's so important for people to, to remember that. And the last thing I'll say is that I, I saw this um, comic or this ad where this person was like um, trying to chop through this, this mine, right? And he was just chopping through, chopping through. And then he's so exhausted and he finally gives up and then he turns around. But it was actually just one more hit where all the gold mm. or whatever was behind it. And sometimes it is just that one more hit and you just don't know when that will be and you have to just trust and I'm, a, I'm very religious and I just said there's no way that God would have set this whole thing up for me for it not to work there's just no way everything has just been like a door opening to another level to another level to another level and you have to look at the big picture and not the moment and in the big picture everything was leading to something and so you have to just trust in that amen well said. Well, very well said. You know, I've said in the past, at least, you know, when you're in that CEO roles, many times you have to, it's a combination of just pure willpower, sometimes being a little naive and just having that thought that, you know, regardless of how many hurdles are in front of you, somehow you're going to figure it out. I think you need some of that in order to be able to push through because to your point, it becomes, there's plenty of times I think it just becomes really difficult to be able to move forward. And Mary, you know, even when everyone was losing hope, um, you know, you kind of have to keep it. I think to your point, having that network that could, then be the one that pulls you up when you're sort of you know, falling a little bit short. Uh, it's super important. I think yeah. especially in these times. I mean, you, can, you can't say that enough, uh, especially in a time like with coronavirus going happening with all of this, you know, issues around Black Lives Matter and, and the, the need for community, the need for the support structures to be there. So, yeah, I love, love your thoughts on that. Now, Rose, how can thing, people get in oh, touch? Sorry, I'm I was going to say one ahead. last thing. Um, I think that also it's really important. Um, I come from, my, my, my father has taught me, you know, to really build a business to last. People build businesses to flip. And I think that mm -hmm. when things get tough, when you're building a business to flip, you just let it go. But when you're building a business mm -hmm. to last that you believe in, you know that what's eight years to 40 years or 50 years, you know, it's um, growing pains. So I think that, you know, when people are looking to start businesses, they should really, one, know if they have experience and expertise in that area, if they're passionate about it. And is it something that they're building for themselves, you know, to grow a business and to have it last and to be a part of, you know, the fabric of a country or the world versus a, to flip it. Mm. Yeah, I think we need a little bit more of that kind of philosophy around here. <laughs> Rose, how can people get in touch with you and find out more about Screen Hits? They just go to screenhits.tv and it's all right there. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us on TDR. Really great to have you and um, encourage everybody listening, obviously, to find out more about your journey and more about Screen Hits and, uh, and to get in touch. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Rose. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. That was cool to have her on, right? Yeah, it was great. First, uh, first guest, Rose. She was great. Um, I think, look, also the fact that she is an African-American CEO, entrepreneur, um, just love hearing those kind of voices. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad she was the first one to be on, on our podcast. 100%. Okay, so lightning round, Jesus, courage or cringe? There's a couple important items this week. Uh, where should we start? Let's start with Amazon and their recent announcement to double black leaders um, and get rid of non-inclusive language. So let, let me break that down. To it's a twofer. It's a twofer. So <laughs> double to courage or cringe it on. Um so Amazon plans to double representation of black leaders within the company in 2020 and again in 2021. So they basically said that they plan to hire and promote employees for vice president and director roles across the company. Um, the, these plans are to promote employees within the organization throughout uh, through the help of company skill development programs for black, Latinx, and Native Americans. 
such as the Black Employee Network Executive Leadership Development Program. So it's good. I mean, they're putting some develop, some development programs here to, to support that in order to get to their goals of increasing representation. The other thing that they brought up, which was an interesting one about the non-inclusive language, right? Um, and by the way, when I read the headline, which is what I then read what it actually was, I, I didn't make the connection initially. But they also, um, Amazon will also be removing non-inclusive language from their documentation and software Words such as blacklist, whitelist, master, slave, and others will be eliminated. So those were the, sort of the, the, I guess, the main points of of the of the announcement. Um, Charlie, and I thought you were going to. I didn't even think you were going to start with Amazon. So this is great. A curveball within a curveball. Um, <laughs> yeah. Look. So I think the first part about um, wanting to double the number of black directors and VPs um, is a good thing. Um, it, I don't, do you have the stats on what it is now? Uh, I don't have it. It wasn't in the article. It wasn't in the article. I don't have it now, but more than likely pretty similar probably story as what we remember. We talked right. about Microsoft a few weeks. So realistically one to 2% of yeah, 13%. Very underrepresented. Right. I mean, right. that's basically the broad issue that I think many of these, in, these companies are, are sort of facing, especially the tech industry. Tech industry tends to be very underrepresented for the African-American uh, you know, employees and, and especially in leadership roles. So it, it falls in line to Microsoft and a bunch of other companies have sort of made similar commitments. Yeah. So I think it, I think that part's good. Uh, it, it brings up the other issue, which is how are you going to do this? Um, because there's some legal issues there if you do it the wrong way. And then the second thing, which it leaves off the table, at least it seems as, like it's off the table, is what else are you going to do to really drive relationship, connection, and engagement with the black community so that it's not just you trying to achieve a KPI, but it's really actually actually uh, investing in the person, in the individual, and in the community. That part is unclear. Well, but they, they talk about the, I mean, they're, part of it is not just hiring, right? It's promoting employees and specifically looking at their, the organization's, you know, uh, skill development programs for mm-hmm. those different groups, right? They mentioned specifically the Black Employee Network Executive Leadership Program or Leadership Development Program, pretty long name. But I mean, I thought but that those part are inter- was actually Those good. are internal. Those are internal, correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of the, you know, I think the issue that we've had in the past when we, when we hear these kind of announcements, that the checking the box is you simply say, hey, if you get five of these and six of these, then great, we're done, right? Uh, and, and that's a that's, dozen. That's a dozen. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. Um, here, at least, are taking that step forward and saying, yeah, we're going to hire, but we're also going to promote employees into these roles and specifically use these development programs within this community to actually help make that happen. So not only do you get you know, the, the kind of candidates you're looking for, but I think you're also giving them a better shot of being successful by going through or investing in these development programs within the organization. Because I think that's the other thing that you and I talk I, about quite a bit is yeah. that if they're not really prepared to have the role, then that's a problem because- And it, if they're not mentored as they go along. Correct. Right. That's a massive, massive issue. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, the engagement part of it, the fact that it's internal is a good thing, not a bad thing. I, I also wish that there was more external facing engagement and relationship and interaction. But anyway, let's leave that part where it is. I think it's good, the idea of the, uh, a noble effort of wanting to actually double and then double again. I'm assuming these numbers are tiny, so doubling is not an issue. And when you're looking to promote mostly from within, it's definitely something you can achieve. I can already see the guys going, we're going to definitely hit this one. So so that's good. The, um, the uh, part about the non-inclusive terminology, um, already it becomes like for me, I, I would, those things automatically make me uncomfortable because it's like non-inclusive 
to who. This is something based on, you know, at least it starts from an ideological perspective. It reminded me of a scene from The Office, the famous Office show, the American version, not the British one, where Michael Scott asks Oscar, the Oscar character, who is supposed to be on the show Mexican or Mexican-American, even though the actor is actually Cuban. But nevertheless, Michael Scott asks Oscar if he prefers being called something less offensive than Mexican, right? Where, of course, there's nothing offensive about the word Mexican, right? Um, and neither is there anything offensive to my mind about the term whitelist. I just don't see it. It doesn't offend me. It is, it's not non-inclusive or inclusive. It's this kind of... Um, determination that's been made by someone attributed to everyone. So everyone now believes this is true and therefore we mu- we must get you know rid of it. And I think it's nerf ball. I think it's total nonsense. And in fact, it, it actually diminishes the good that the other part of the program does because it equates them. It's like, we're going to do this great work to try to double our, our, our black directors and VPs. And we've got this great program and we're going to get rid of the word whitelist. It makes everything on the level of, of nerfiness when you add that part to the end of it. Um, and that's why, to me, at the end of the day, this one is a cringe. All right. Well, we know where you stand. Uh, you know, when I saw this, I chuckled a little bit when I saw the, the word listed. But I definitely didn't have the same response you did. I guess let's start with the, not with the, with the, with the beginning. Why does you not being offended by whitelist sort of negate the value of them of getting rid of this word if it may or may not offend other people? It, it does not. I, I think the premise is that they are non-inclusive language. That's the premise. But when you have something, okay, let's, let's, let's take that forward. When you have something labeled as the master, another label as a slave, mm-hmm. the direct cor- correlation to that is to slavery. That's actually where that, those terms come from. Sure. I, actually, I don't know in the case of blacklist and whitelist if that's wh- where it comes from. I mean, part of it going back to what is the root of those words mm-hmm. that are so very commonly used in a software industry that by far has been very white. And therefore, I'm sure when this need were being, you know, were, were being created, there was no concern at all. Oh, we can call something the master, something else the slave. No one's worried about what implication it has or ties it has to slavery because the majority of people making those decisions at the time were probably white. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with that, that, that the connotation, and I don't know where the, the origin of the master-slave terminology is. It relates to technical speak because this technically this usually um if i recall correctly has to do with um like servers and uh you know basically communication devices that one is the the one that kind of feeds all the other ones so they call the big one the master and the other one the slaves i don't i don't know the etymology of this dynamic as it relates to the technological industry but the idea that just master slave automatically means master slave as it relates to american slavery is already an assumption in most cases in the in in the global dynamic of masters and slaves masters and slaves have been of the same ethnicity or similar in from a global perspective yes in the united states we had something very different so my point is you're kind of making my point my point is that Somebody decided. I think I'm making your point, but go ahead. Okay. Well, some somebody. <laughs> here, here's 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 my uh, point. My point is that somebody decided that this terminology was non-inclusive. By saying that it is, it means that they're telling me something that I must feel about these terms when I do not, and so therefore it puts me outside of 
whatever the construct is automatically. Why couldn't I just as easily say, hey, the fact that you're taking it away is actually offensive to me. And then we get into this whole thing about, well, I'm still offended. And why isn't my level of offense at the same level as someone else's level of offense? Do you see what I'm saying? No. Okay. Actually, no, I don't see it at all what you're saying. In this case, the taking away the master slave or blacklist whitelist is not saying that it's offensive to you, right? I, I actually would like to better understand what are the roots of those names? That's not, where did it actually come from? Because right. I think that actually does then speak a lot to whether or not they should be removed, mm-hmm. right? If those names do really do come from and they have connotations too, in this case, we're talking about software development, which for the most part was actually very sort of, you know, driven by the, by the U.S., if those connotations are driven by master slavery dynamics and the people that came up with those had to be primarily white that did that, then I don't have an issue with those being removed. Even if to the average person that sees that, they don't immediately think of this being something that should or should not offend me. Say, hey, guys, you know, we're at a stage now where some of the, the, the just the terms that we use, we're just not going to use them. And by the way, because I don't have these- an issue with this company removing any term. They're a private company. They can do whatever they want. My point is, philosophically, do I agree with it and whether or not it's courageous or cringy? That's that's the yeah. issue that's in discussion. No, for sure. For, yeah, whether or not you think it's courageous or cringe, actually, I'm not even going to disagree with you on that. That's, of course, your opinion to it. What I'm simply saying is them removing those terms doesn't is not an indication that you now, Charlie, need to be offended by it. Oh, it's not saying that. And you, you just yeah. said that right now. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think they're saying that either. To me, it's like, I goes back to better understanding. I just don't know. I chuckled because it does, What the part that I do agree with you is that when you do them at the same time, it does take away from this, like, this really big thing. But some, some, some one looks really big. The other one seems, well, maybe important, a little bit more trivial. What it does remind me of though, and this is where I have a different point of view, this because you know, one of my first uh, work experiences was working for mobile in the oil industry. So I, I studied engineering and I was an operations engineer intern mm-hmm. in, uh, in, the, uh, in the oil fields, you know, over here in um, sort of uh, by Bakersfield, right? Working for mobile at the time. And I remember that one of the things that came up in that time is they were talking about actually changing some of the terminology and some of the piping that they would use because some of the terminology and it was like, what was a connector? and What's the one that got connected? Were pretty offensive terms to the average woman that, I mean, that they use. And part of it, because the guys that were coming up with the terms were all guys. And during a time when no women worked there. And one of the issues that came up when we were there is the notion like, hey, maybe we should stop using those terms because they were, I think in those cases, I don't know if they were the official term, more like slang that they would use. Because for any woman that is there, it's actually pretty offensive. And that was at a time where even there as an intern, there was, I think, I think, I think one, I think only one, maybe a couple, but one that I can remember of an actual female engineer that worked at the at the oil fields where the majority of people were men. Right. And that is a case where the average guy was not at all offended by it. As a matter of fact, they probably didn't mind at all having those kind of terminology for the piping. But it was that one woman who, you know, it was, you know, even I, when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, it's kind of an interesting way to call it. I could see the notion that if it made it more comfortable for that one woman that was there, by not calling this, and I think it was on, on piping, yeah. getting rid of this terminology that was really unnecessary, it didn't matter whether the men that were there weren't offended by it. They just really shouldn't just be using it if that made this one person uncomfortable because that's who's actually making it uncomfortable. I th- but I think we're talking about different things. And I think you're talking about a much more limited universe than the example that you just gave of people, it sounds like almost like a group of friends talking amongst themselves. No, it was common in the industry. Like that's what they call these things. Right. And the point is like, cha- they got to get to a point where now they had to readjust their language that we used to actually call some of this So it was piping. probably more than one woman then 
it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, right. I just, I think about it in the context of of that in specific location where I was. There was one woman that was there, and when I thought of it from her perspective, I'm like, yeah, I could see that being. Like kind of messed up to hear that all the time. Yeah. Even though it's very like that's the terminology Here, people have. Here's the part that maybe we're not we're not like uh, we're seeing things from a different perspective is when something becomes labeled as non-inclusive, which is what this is. This is non-inclusive language according to Amazon. Do we agree on that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then that's it's what hard. They call it, yeah. That's what they called it. Yeah. According to the article. Okay, so if they call it non-inclusive, it's hard for me to understand how something that has been deemed by Amazon, let's take the limited universe of the Amazon employee pool. You're one of the hundred and some odd thousand people that work there. I think it's actually more than that. Inside of Amazon, this is now a non-inclusive term. Now, for me to go from that to Amazon saying, this is offensive terminology, which should not be spoken of. It's a very close leap. You're you're seeing it a much broader one. You're saying because it's non-inclusive doesn't mean it's offensive. Right. I think to so every single person doesn't mean that it should be offensive to every single person. For sure. Well, okay, but you're kind of setting the rule for at least the limited universe of Amazon that in the context of Amazon this is offensive. The term whitelist is now been deemed offensive. So if you work at Amazon, if you say the word whitelist now, after they've deemed it non-inclusive, you're probably not going to make a lot of friends. Yes or no? I don't. Yeah, I think we're we're taking some leaps here. I I don't know, right? Because okay. part part of it is going to be like how they go about doing this. They're going to say, "Hey, we're going to start sunsetting these terms." I know it's part of our vernacular, but in order to make it a more inclusive work for. By the way, inclusive is not about making everyone that all of a sudden everyone thinks is, is is they're offended by it. It's simply saying for those that may be more directly impacted by this. Do they feel better about being here because some of these terms are not are actually used that are in some cases not necessary? And that's, the exa- that's the reason I was giving you the example of like my literally my very first internship at, 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 at mobile is that it's not that it, those terms ever offended the, all the males that have been working there the entire time. They were all obviously perfectly fine with it. Is that it didn't make those females that were there feel like they were being excluded. I get it. And, this, and that's where the inclusive versus ex- exclusive totally get it. sort of dynamic that I'm bringing up. My issue is not who gets offended. My issue is that they've said the word is offensive. They have now made that categorical edict for people who work at Amazon. This is a non-inclusive term. I don't know anybody who would say that non-inclusive terms are actually compliments. Non-inclusive terms are by their nature offensive. Therefore, whitelist equals offensive. That's what's happened inside of Amazon. And to me, I disagree with that. I disagree with, with well, first of all, because I think it's silly in that particular example. And nevertheless, it is something that's been done. And I just don't agree with policing the way that people talk and express themselves beyond common courtesy and just the decency that we should all have. In other words, I don't need you to put in an employee handbook the words I can't say. I, like I want to have the. Tr- but if, if that's an official, no, no. I think you do it all the time, Charlie. Like no, you don't. Yeah. How? There's yeah. I mean, as part of an employee handbook, the certain terminology that you use to how you communicate with each other as it relates to software, as it relates to process, are words that, as an organization, you bless or agree to. You're going to call this. You could have slang for something. And you can say, hey, guys, like, we're just not going to use that. In this company, we're not going to use that. I think that happens all the time. It does, but it doesn't fall into the realm of what then becomes unacceptable socially. You're talking about like business processes. But and that's if what we, this is. 
Mm, well, what do you mean? It is a business process, but it's but it's gone into a different realm. It's, it's saying is removing it from their documentation and software. Like it's literally from the business practice. Yeah, I know. But what I'm saying where we're disagreeing is you believe that you could still possibly be employed at Amazon and call everything whitelist without people giving you, without having a negative recourse happen because now that word has been deemed inappropriate. That's where we're disagreeing. I'm saying that it's much more likely if I work at Amazon and I decide to keep calling something whitelist that people are going to retaliate against me for using that terminology because my employer has now indicated that that is a no-no word. You're saying that that isn't going to happen and I disagree with you. No, I think it could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, what this is, and, and part of it is that, yeah, organizations all the time come up with what terminology they're going to use. And to some extent, you have to be able to enforce it. And you're going to have a subset of people that are not going to want to do it because they just don't like being told what they can or can't do. Right. right? So that's going to happen. The same thing happened at mobile during that time. And it wasn't just mobile, by the way, it was like a, an, yeah. an issue with the industry in general. That happened. Well, you will get to a point where people, hopefully, eventually, they'll kind of get over themselves and just sort of, you know, use whatever the terminology is that the company agrees to actually use here. I think all of this, the silliness or not of this, to me, is entirely rooted. Which, by the way, is a point that I don't know. On to what degree those terms actually do have a direct correlation to this dynamic that happened in the States around slavery. And if they did, I have no issue with removing those. I, I don't think it, it takes anyone's like rights yeah. away or, or, or does anything wrong there by, by getting rid of them. I definitely don't have an issue with them removing it because they're a private company. I just philosophically disagree with it. And it makes it cringy because I don't like for people generally to codify what people can say or not. Because, and this is again, where we're, where we're, where we're disagreeing is I think whether or not your corporate culture calls something a deck or a presentation is not going to yield a negative uh, impact on you as an employee. I think if you continue to call something whitelist, as of today, after Amazon has deemed that non-inclusive, I think you will feel it in your relationships inside the company, in your whether or not you get promoted into all these different things. And that's very different than a technical term. You're going outside of the realm of the technical and now attaching morality to, tech, to, to terminology that is otherwise, you know, I mean, it's unique in this case, right? We're not saying, you know how many things offend me? As a, I mean, seriously, as a Christian, like growing up in Hollywood, sure. you know how many terminologies offend me? I mean, if it's about offense as being the, 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 the sort of the marker by which we determine what language is acceptable, I mean, it, it's just very, to me, it's unmanageable. It's unwieldy. I think you should set the, 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 the bias on the kind of culture you're going to make where people want to treat each other with respect. And if somebody says, hey, you know what? I don't like that word, then I'll stop using it. But don't put it in an employee handbook that I can't. And then if I do, somebody's going to retaliate against me, which undoubtedly would happen. That's where I, I kind of draw the line. Yeah, I, I really disagree with you on this one. I think, well, first of all, they're a private company, so we both agree that they have 100% right to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Just in the same way that Mole was a private company, they had 100% right to do it. The, the issue really is not that to me. The issue is that, and I do think it happens all the time, where companies change the language that they want to use, and they and they include it as part of their, their handbooks in terms of how things would get documented. And there's nothing wrong with that. Does it feel a little silly? Of course it feels a little bit silly, because we're talking about words that are so common to the language in this case that I think the average person doesn't even think about this. What I don't know, and I go back to the same thing, where I do think it will make a big difference is understanding what is the actual root of those words. And if that is the case, then frankly, I have no issue with it. And I think having that included in your documentation, especially for how you're going to talk about software or any, or any kind of process, is important because that's the language that as a company you're choosing to communicate with each other. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, good. We'll leave that where it is. Um, I'm. It sounds like your courage. I'm cringe. It's funny because I'm actually not that courage on this one. I just really disagree yeah. with you on that second point. But you don't have that. You don't have that option. You can't be. Not, yeah. Uh, which, I mean, which I would say it? it's. Look, and and just to be consistent in my themes with all of these, I think it's courage. How about this? The reason why I think it's courage is actually not because of that. I think it's courage specifically in not only announcing that they want to increase representation, but how they want to go about doing it. At least from what we can tell, in their in their tie into uh, to actually using. Uh, development programs to actually support folks that are going to get promoted. So I think if they're doing that, then I'm, I'm definitely courage. Well said. And I think I would have actually been courage if they hadn't done the Nerf ball thing with whitelist and other stuff. Okay. So um, that's that. What's uh, what's next? Uh, yeah. Recently it was, it was announced that uh, uh, Palantir's um, founder or co-founder and uh, of eight VC firm is actually uh, Joel Lonsdale's name. I'm sorry. Uh, decide, is deciding to move his firm uh, from San Francisco to Austin. It was a big venture firm for those who don't know. Yeah, right? venture capital firm, correct. Um, and it's for a number of reasons, although, you know, between the high, high and rising cost of living, uh, taxes for California, and a broader shift, to, of course, to, re- to remote work, you know, many of those in the tech industry are finding ways to to really to leave to leave the state, right? You kind of seeing that. You know, we've talked about it now quite a bit in terms of like Joe Rogan and and his, you know, how vocal he's been about moving out of California. But also specifically, and it was brought up with him specifically, is that in some circles, particularly those that tend to lean more libertarian, uh, there's also a growing disdain for the politics that are happening in, in the Bay Area, all right? And their notion or their feeling that it's going to continue to swing even farther to the left. Now, Joe. Lonsdale himself has been involved and supported, I think, multiple Republican causes. And it's probably one that just sits in that spectrum much more conservative. These roles are speaking to what the, what the, what the general consensus is there uh, in the Bay Area. And, um, and it's sort of making this claim that, hey, I'm, I don't agree with the politics. I think the tax situation is, is, is not right how it should be here. Um, and therefore, I'm moving my, you know, my firm out of uh, the Bay Area into, the, into Austin. And then you've got, I think you may have mentioned this, right? So Palantir and 8VC, right? AVC is another firm. Well, that he, yeah, he started, uh, he was a co-founder of Palantir and, um, and also runs 8VC firm. And 8VC is, you know, does a bunch of obviously investment in startups, but, you know, they're famously connected to um, the uh, founder of Oculus. Uh, Palmer uh, Lucky. They also um, invested in Asana that we've actually used before, kind of a workplace software that was uh, built by um, Facebook's co-founder, Dustin Moskovitz. And they've got a bunch of other investments, right? Um, Hims, the the men's health company, uh, the uh, the health uh, insurance startup, Oscar. They're like, you know, they're, they're well connected to a lot of you know, kind of industry making, um, you know, startups or at least clutter breaking ones. Let's, let's leave it. Let's call it that. The quote that I kind of pulled from this piece is the increasing intolerance and monoculture, quote unquote, in the tech uh, industry. And this as being one of the reasons. And then he, he, he goes on to joke. I forget exactly who this quote is attributed to. So if it's not to Lonsdale, then it's to somebody else. But I think it is to him. He says, it's generally a good idea to have awesome left hippies around for great culture, music and food, just rather that they don't all run the state. So he, he kind of jokes about that. But look, I mean, I, I think that, that we've seen a little bit of this. Um, 
you know, love him or hate him. Joe Rogan is a, is certainly a, a culture sort of staple. So I think that the fact that he just very famously and visibly left California for Austin, I think maybe will signal other things and other people kind of moving out there. And the venture side of the equation, maybe that'll do the same here. Um, this is not the first one of these that's happened. I think in, in there's a couple of instances of people who are not as high flying or visible as these guys who've already done that move. In fact, a buddy of mine is a president of a company uh, called Trustwork that left Seattle, so not the Bay Area, but left Seattle for Texas for the very same kind of reasons. And, you know, look, for the me- The same reasons being what? The, 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 the politics? The, the increasing intolerance and monoculture in the tech industry, right? At least as they perceive it. Um, and I think, look, we just talked about it to some degree, right or wrong, and we have different perspectives on it, but we just talked about it to some degree with this Amazon thing, right? There are people who think like, okay, now I can't say this word, now I can't do this. and feeling increasingly restricted. I want to go to a place where it's okay- for people to be occasionally offended because I'm occasionally offended and to govern against occasional offense is going to be very difficult to run businesses with. I get that. I get that perspective. I think for me, the reason this is a courage, and then I'll give it to you, is that it's going against the stream. It's definitely going against it. It'd be much easier to stay up in the Bay Area and socialize and hobnob and rub elbows and go to all the, you know, wine drinking parties and just agree with everybody and head nod and say, yeah, we're on, we're on your side. That would be more advantageous in some cases. So you're kind of bucking that trend and leaving. Now, of course, you could then spin that and say, I'm actually an early mover and I'm, I'm really with it. And so like, follow me. I get it. But still, it's harder to be first. It's harder to, be, to, to kind of go against the stream. And so for that and for the diversity of thought reasons that they claim to be doing it, there may be a hundred other ones. I don't know. But at least for that one, it's a courage for me. Yeah. I mean, my initial resp- response, I'm like, eh. <laughs> when I saw this, honestly, like, I, I'm like, okay. I we, mean, we don't have a, eh. Yeah, like, eh. You know why? Because Austin is very liberal. Like, everyone keeps on talking about like, moving to Austin. Like, and somehow you're like now in total libertarian country. You're not. Like, in total conservative country, you're not, right? You have much better tax benefits, for sure. So, when I hear all this comment about, I'm going to Austin because I want to be away from the woke movement, what are you talking about? Have you been to Austin? Right? You know how many <laughs> I don't think a lot of people have. Literally, their entire phrase is keep Austin weird. Yeah, no, I know. That's how the entire city sort of, you know, reflect. part of the reason why when I lived in Texas, I loved Austin is for how weird it is. Mm-hmm. It's like being like somewhere outside of Texas. In That's where, you, where it is to be in Austin. So I could respect this way more. If that was, if really was about not wanting to be as tied into a more liberal sort of sense and community, et cetera. If they were going almost anywhere else, not anywhere else, but like in Texas, I could see it a lot lot more. You're going to a place that's also super liberal. Like, I don't understand that dynamic. I think there is definitely, I think, some issues here that he definitely feels strongly about as relates to the actual government, right? Mm -hmm. And state government Mm -hmm. in this case, California state versus versus Texas state and and how that gets governed, taxes, et cetera. To me, those are probably much bigger reasons to why he's actually moving. It also sounds like because of some of those other companies where they're located, it's just easier for him anyway. But making this as a, some kind of referendum against liberalism when you're going to a city that's super liberal is like, what? What? Yeah. Like, and, and I think what are you talking about? But before you say where you ultimately net out, I would invite you to th- consider one thing because, and I don't know, I don't know these people. I've never talked right. to them. I have no idea. Yeah, me, me neither. Just but full disclosure, <laughs> right? But to be clear, someone may say they want to move to Austin precisely because it is liberal. And a lot of those people believe that liberalism in a classical sense has been replaced by what they experience, uh, 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 you know, this kind of 
you know, maybe more tied to the kind of woke movement, restrictions on free speech, those kind of things. And so they actually do want to go to a place that does represent classical liberal values, which free speech used to be one, right? Yeah, so and, and if that maybe, was that's, case, yeah, maybe that's it. I would say, Charlie, if it was giving them a lot of credit, way, you give them tons of credit here. Very nuanced. But Imagine you know, if that, I knew him. That, that's what the you know, whole thing is all about, being nuanced. So I, I think if, if that was the, like, the way it was being described, and once again, we're, we're, we're reacting to you know, a couple of different headlines and articles was like, you know, this was covered. But if that was the way it was being described, I'm like, okay, I get that. I understand that. I think the way it is right now, some kind of, once again, referendum on the, on the left somehow, I, I just think that's, it, it's, it's, I think it's doing some of this for effect. Because you're also going to a place that's super liberal to begin with. So you're going from a liberal place to another very liberal place with much better tax rates. So let's just talk about what it is. If it's about having much better tax rates, no problem. Like, I get it. Fine. But I, I just don't buy it. And that's why my initial was like, eh, it's not a cringe because I think it's wrong. I just think it's cringe for the headline to make it about an anti-woke movement when you're going to a woke place. Got it. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. So, um... And you may be right, 100%. I, I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in there in their, in their defense in case I ever need uh, some uh, investment money from uh, Palantir <laughs> or from 8VC. Just so you know, guys, I was on your side. Okay. Um, anyway, fun show, Jesus. That, just to recap, uh, sounds like you're courage and cringe, and I'm cringe and courage. Uh, so true to form, we have stayed in our different camps, but hopefully had a good conversation. This may be the first time, though, that we, got, that we were on opposite camps on, well, on, on both of them. We've, we've, we've often not done just two though. We've done three and four. So right, it's right. kind of, yeah, you know, so the numbers haven't been in our right. favor, but um, anyway, so thanks again to Rose Atkins Holtz uh, for joining us on this episode and uh, looking forward to the next one. Uh, has just any parting words? No, I mean, look, we're, we're going to continue to unpack. Uh, I think this presidential election uh, because it was, it, it is very historic level participation, how these shifts in voting patterns are are happening, both based on where people are li- where people live, education, and then more importantly, you just can't see the diverse vote as a homogeneous group. And ultimately, you know, I think this on this point we really do agree uh, is that while personally I would love to see even more support for some of the Democratic candidates, at the same time, is I like the fact that everyone has to earn it, and I think that's going to have that's going to pay dividends, and I hope that candidates really do take it seriously, continue to take it seriously, not just for presidential, but for Senate, for all of the local races as well, is that continue to look at this group as a group that cares, that wants to be active, that needs to be tailored to. Absolutely. And to that, I would only add that part and parcel to that is the importance and continued emphasis of what it means to have uh, true diversity around the board, ethnicity, et cetera, and not to forget about diversity of thought. Whatever you feel about certain individual things, I think the, the, the premise of having a variety of, point of points of views ultimately is a thing that is good and that is healthy. Okay, cool. Great to be with you, Jesus. Thank you very much Thank for you. another great episode. And we will see all of you again next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. 
The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.